Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week, my producer Miranda and I explore the top stories making waves in the news, and some that are just plain interesting. We connect you with the journalists and people who know the story, and bring you news without the noise, so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, we will be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. One of the most heartbreaking stories that happened this week was that of Timothy Pitson. Hopes were raised really high that he had been actually found. He went missing in 2011 when he was age six. There was a man who was detained by police who claimed he was Timothy Pitson, and it turned out that it wasn't him. DNA tests proved that it was not him. He was actually a 23-year-old man named Brian Michael Reaney. But what actually happened to Timothy Pitson? He went missing after his mother took him out of school one day, took him on a three-day trip to a zoo and water parks. Shortly after that, she was found dead in a Rockford motel room, and she left behind a note saying that her son was safe with people that would love him, but he would never be found. My producer Miranda joins us to tell his story. Well, we know that the guy that was found claiming to be Timothy Pitson is not, in fact, Timothy Pitson. He's a guy named Brian Michael Reaney. He's in his early 20s, and he claimed to be this kid. And FBI did a DNA test, and they confirmed that the DNA did not match with that of Pitson. Timothy Pitson went missing when he was six, six and a half years old. So right. he would have been about 14 years old now. And they've released a picture of this man, Brian Michael Arini. They say he's 23. He doesn't look 14 years old at all. He doesn't look 23. Right. In my opinion, <laughs> he's Oscar. Had, he's had a rough time. So how did people spot him? How did they he come into the custody of police? The person claiming to be Timothy Brian told investigators he escaped two kidnappers he described as white males with bodybuilder physiques, curly hair and tattoos. He said that he was staying at a Red Roof Inn with his abductors and that after he escaped, He ran across a bridge from Ohio into Kentucky, and he was found wandering the streets of a town called Newport. He was first spotted by a couple of teenage girls who were walking to school. They initially called 911 on him because he was being kind of weird and standing in the middle of the street. Another witness described it as he looked like he was going to collapse or that he was trying to break into cars. He looked very suspicious. He was disheveled and dirty. At Uh, 7.30 in the morning. He had a hoodie on. And yeah, and he was hanging around some cars. Another woman said she got up close to him. It looked as if he had been beaten up. He had bruises all over his face. So yeah, they called the police. Cops came about 15 minutes later, picked him up and whisked him away. And that's where he told them his story. And this has been one of the biggest mysteries for the family and Aurora not finding Timothy. They never were able to find him. The mother, Amy Fry Pitson, committed suicide and she left a note that said, I'm going to leave him with somebody who's going to love him and you'll never find him. Let's pivot to the actual case of Timothy Pitson, because for this news to come out and people's hopes to be brought up, you know, the grandmother, his aunt his dad, all hoping that they finally found their their son, their long lost son, and to no avail. You know, it, it's heartbreaking. And we have a little clip of the family, actually, just saying how it was hearing the news and that, that it wasn't him. It's devastating. Yeah. It's yeah. like reliving that day all over again. And uh, Timothy's father is devastated once again. As are we. You know, I I was very close to Tim. He spent a lot of time here. The last morning I had him, he crawled in bed with me and told me I was the best grandma in the whole wide world. So he's a wonderful little boy, and I hope he has the strength of personality to do whatever he needs to do to find us. 
That was the grandmother Alana Anderson and the aunt Kara Jacobs. Let's get back into it. What happened to Timothy Pitson? The reports were that his father dropped him off at school, and then after, shortly after that, his mother picked him up, took him on a three-day trip to a zoo and some water parks. That was all before she was found dead by suicide in this Rockford motel room. So tell us a little bit of the timeline, Miranda. Police were able to map out a timeline of their travels. After the husband dropped off Timothy at school, it was a Wednesday morning, she pulled him out of his kindergarten class an hour later, telling the front office she lied to them saying that there had been a family emergency. She then took him to the Brookfield zoo and a water park in Gurney. And then the next day they made stops in Racine and Johnson Creek, Wisconsin. They went to the Kalahari resort in the Wisconsin Dells. It was there that a security camera actually captured them checking out on the Friday morning. And that was the last time Timothy was seen later that afternoon. The mom made several cell phone calls. Police say originated near a place called Sterling, Illinois, including that one you spoke about earlier in which Timothy talked to a family member. And they said that it didn't sound as if he were in any danger or there was any reason to worry. Security footage showed the mom at a grocery store in Winnebago that night before she checked into a Rockford motel alone. And it was the next day at 1230 p.m. that workers found her body. And it's interesting because they said that they did an investigation of the mom's car and found that items were missing from it that would corroborate her story of giving him to someone. Like yeah. his car seat was gone. His backpack was gone. They even found out that the mother's SUV at some point had stopped on some gravel road in a nearby county or something. So maybe this is where the handoff of Timothy was made. We don't know. And James Pitson, his father, told People Magazine in 2015 that she always wonders what she told Timothy. In that last phone call, he sounded fine. Right. He said, why hasn't he tried to call? We taught him how to dial 911. This is your number. This is your mom's number. This is where you live, your address, all the stuff that you teach little kids to know where they're at and help identify themselves. They taught Timothy, and this is the biggest confusion. Her mother, Alana Anderson, who was in that clip we just heard, said that you don't ever give your children away. I had some trouble forgiving her for what she did to herself. I don't think I can ever forgive her for what she did to her child. Their hopes got brought up so much with possibly finding their long-lost grandson and nephew and son for the father, James, and to no avail on this one. So we'll see what happens, and we'll see what becomes of Brian Michael Reaney if he gets charged with making another false report or if there's something else, if maybe he's just confused and he has mental issues. We'll have to see and find out. Thank you, Miranda. Thanks, Oscar. Get ready for congestion pricing. New York City is set to become the first big city in the country to charge vehicles a fee for driving in its most congested streets. The hope is that it's going to ease gridlock and raise money for public transit. It's a complicated issue in a high-profile area, and that means that other cities are going to be watching. A lot of cities across the country are mulling over implementing similar systems, so it's important to see how New York plays this all out. Paul Berger, he's a reporter for the Wall Street Journal, joins us to discuss what we know about the New York plan. And most importantly, how much it would cost and how much is expected to be raised. A previous panel that looked at this suggested somewhere in the region of $11.50 for a car to enter the zone. We don't know what the wow. charge is going to end up. Another panel is going to look at that. But the aim is to raise a billion dollars in revenue a year that can be used to basically borrow money that can then be invested in the mainly in the subway system, but also in the buses and commuter rail. Eleven fifty for cars. I think it was $0.25.30 for trucks. That seems like a big price hike, right? But it's kind of that delicate balance. If you charge drivers too little, 
you'll make a little bit of money, but you'll still have traffic jams because everybody's still going to be there. Charge too much, and then you risk turning off too many drivers. I know that the congestion notion of congestion pricing has been around for a while. There's a lot of other cities in the world that do have this type of system right now. In New York, that 11.50, that was kind of a set fee that they were talking about. But in the legislation that they passed in New York at the weekend, what they said was they wanted to have what's called variable pricing. So we don't know exactly what it will look like. You know, maybe it will be at certain times of the day. It will cost more to come into Manhattan than other times of the day. Perhaps they will actually have a way, I mean, the ideal scenario is they would have a way of actually measuring the amount of traffic going into the city and how congested the area is so that they can charge more at specific congested times. But in other cities in the world where they've tried this, like in London, in the first year, they saw a massive reduction in congestion. I think travel speeds increased by something like 30%. And they saw uh, something in the region of an 11% shift in people from using their cars to using mass transit, walking or biking. They've done studies on how fast the cars are going in areas like this. And New York City had the slowest downtown business district speed at nine miles an hour. Anybody that has been to the area knows how slow it is to get through that main part of the city right there, like in Midtown. What's going on in New York specifically with the traffic? I I mean, I know there's a lot of construction. There's a lot of cars just park wherever they want to, deliveries. There's a ton of ride-sharing cars between Uber and Lyft now. They're all contributing to the traffic there, but what's the real problem? And and specifically on the ride-sharing cars, are they going to be subject to this charge as well? Nine miles an hour actually would be a dream speed to move through Manhattan at these days. Right. That was like an average that was given out by Inrix, this analytics firm. But New York City itself says that in some parts of Manhattan, the speed is actually somewhere closer to about five miles an hour. Wow. Some buses, it's actually quicker to walk across the city than it is to take the bus. So the speeds here are, are pretty terrible. And as you point out, you know, there are a lot of different reasons for that, like construction, even even the addition of bike lanes basically takes away road space, which make, can tend to make the roads more congested. But yeah, the ride-hailing cars, Uber and Lyft, have just completely swamped the city. So in the last five years, we've gone from none of those cars to about 80,000 of those cars. And they've been mainly concentrated in the central business district, which is where the congestion zone is going to be. One of the big criticisms of Uber and Lyft, although they have increased availability and accessibility of taxis, those cars spend a huge portion of their time circling empty, waiting for rides. And those empty cars are obviously contributing to congestion. As far as the fee goes, I don't believe that they're going to be subject to the congestion fee that we're currently talking about, but they are already paying a fee that was passed in the state budget last year. And so every Uber and Lyft trip is subject to a $2.75 charge. And that's any trip that actually touches a congestion zone that's even bigger than the one we're talking about. Yellow taxis are also paying extra. They're paying $2.50. And if you take a pool ride where you share it with a, with a stranger, that's 75 cents per trip. In New York, there is a, a massive need to fix the subway. New Yorkers are extremely proud of the subway. I think a lot of people around the country are kind of fascinated by the subway. And in the last few years, it's just become dire. The delays, the disruptions have been pretty constant and consistent. And people have had enough. I think they look around the world at Paris, London, and other cities, and they say, why can't we have a a modern system that's just way more reliable. The MTA, the Metropolitan Transportation Authority that runs the subway basically has said it's going to cost us $40 billion to fix the subway. The governor and state legislators have decided that the best way of funding that fix 
is congestion pricing, which, you know, basically, A, funds mass transit, but B, uh, hopefully reduces congestion in the city, so you kind of win on both ends. In other cities, they don't have an enormous century-old mass transit system that's in dire need of funds, but they do have, say, in LA, like a, a modern transit system that perhaps needs expansion. And so congestion pricing is, I guess, in many ways, a good fix on all sides. You get to hopefully reduce pollution, you get to address climate change, and you get to help people get where they're going faster. And at the same time, for the other people who depend on mass transit, they get a more reliable, more frequent service. Paul Berger, reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. One of the biggest stories in the food world is that of Burger King doing the impossible. They're releasing the Impossible Whopper at 59 locations in the St. Louis area and testing it out. Hopefully, if all goes well, they're going to release it to all 7,200 locations in the U.S. that they have. Increasingly, a lot of restaurants are offering meat alternatives to their customers, and Impossible Foods is just one of the companies that is making headway in this field. Burger King is even marketing the burger as 100% Whopper and 0% beef. For more on this, we spoke to John Porter, who works at The Verge, to tell us about Burger King's latest meatless offering. So far, they've announced they're going to be selling it across 59 locations in the St. Louis, Missouri area. But they've kind of indicated that if this goes well, then they would be willing to consider rolling it out kind of nationwide in the U.S., which would be like over 7,000 locations. So it, yeah. it's really the biggest chain so far that's kind of committed to like experimenting with, with kind of meat-free burgers, really. The Impossible Burger already had a sort of a trial, kind of, if you want to call it, at White Cat. White Castle already started selling slider versions of the Impossible Burger, and they said that they met sales quotas pretty early on, and there was a lot of enthusiasm for it there. So I can't imagine it failing completely in St. Louis, which, as you said, would lead to them being in over 7,200 locations in Burger Kings if everything goes well. At this point, it's definitely a novelty. I have definitely gone to restaurants because I know that they serve a meat-free burger and I'll go there and I'll like on purpose order the meat-free burger. Yeah. But this coming to Burger King, Burger King's the kind of place, they're just everywhere. It's the kind of place you could accidentally find yourself at. So it'll be really interesting to see if the kind of person that wants to go to Burger King to get a burger, who hasn't specifically chosen a restaurant to try out a specific recipe, if they will go for the meat-free option. I think it's it will be a really interesting test to see if it kind of resonates with a wider audience, really. The two main companies that are kind of battling it out right now are Impossible Foods, which is going to be featured at Burger King. And then Beyond Meat is another company. Carl's Jr. had their trial at this. I think it started in January where they put the Beyond Meat burger in their famous star. Now, that one I had, and it was pretty delicious. I think I can still recognize meat <laughs> if I was given a meat <laughs> burger. But it's funny. Some of the executives from Burger King are saying, you know, in our initial trials, some of our customers and even our employees can't tell the difference. And I don't know, that could be PR spin, but that's kind of where they're going at right now. I can believe it, though. Personally, I think a lot of it comes down to how many condiments and stuff you, ha you have in the burger. I agree. So I tried out the Impossible Burger at a place called Fat Burger and Buffalo's Express last time I was in L.A. Honestly, I thought it was delicious. But there was there was a lot of sauce in there. There are a lot of like other flavorings, gherkins, that sort of stuff. So really... Impossible Burger, they say that when they test it, they taste they test it both naked and then also like fully loaded in a burger to kind of try and get a decent idea of, of how it will taste in different situations. I couldn't tell the difference. I don't know if that's just my specific palate, but yeah, it's, it's definitely interesting. One of the interesting things at Burger King, they said they're still going to top it with mayonnaise. So vegans would not be able to enjoy it 
just outright. They'd probably have to ask for it without. So what is the Impossible Foods burger made out of? It's based out of heme. It comes from some soybean roots or something. It's soy based. It's made from kind of like the roots of a soybean plant and then apparently mass produced using yeast. And this kind of changed in January where they introduced the second version of, the, of their Impossible Burger. And the emphasis there, like this version of the burger is apparently a lot healthier. Burger King have kind of said that it has 15% less fat than a standard Whopper. It's got apparently 90% less cholesterol. And then you'd also hope that there are kind of flavor enhancements and stuff going on in there as well. And then in addition to soy, they've kind of, they've got other ingredients to kind of give more of the texture of a burger, which I think is the more important thing when you've got lots of condiments and stuff going on. It's kind of like that's hiding the taste of the burger. Burger King, obviously, they've had like this really close relationship with beef. And for a long time, all their Whopper wrappers said 100% beef, no filler. So now the new rapper is going to say 100% Whopper, 0% beef. But this is kind of the trend. All A lot of the fast foods are looking for other options to provide for their customers. Yeah, it's like there are a few advantages that going meat-free has. You know, it's it's healthier. There's the ethical argument that should we be eating so many animals? I think for me, though, the biggest argument for it, it is just the environmental one. Like the sheer amount of greenhouse gases that are produced just through meat and animal agriculture. It's astonishing. It's, it's apparently between like 14 and 18 percent of greenhouse gases. Apparently, right. a really significant part of that, literally cow farts, <laughs> yeah. which apparently contribute the methane, yeah. almost like 4 percent to greenhouse gas emissions. So <laughs> it is an environmental problem and we can have lots of conversations about moving to electric cars and more uh, environmentally friendly forms of energy production. But there are other things we can do as well and the way we eat does contribute to them. And so if you can go into a, a mass market burger place and if you can buy a meat-free burger, I think that's a great thing. Although one thing we haven't talked about so far is price. I think Burger King have said that the Impossible Whopper is going to cost about a dollar more than the existing Whopper. Maybe that that the novelty aspect of it will encourage people to, to pay more, but that will be really interesting to see. If it's if it's not a like-for-like, like, if, if you're actually having to make that choice to pay a little bit more, will that discourage people? I've got no idea. Right. One interesting interesting note that I thought in the whole testing phase of this is that Impossible Foods did ship one of Burger King's flame broiling machines overnight to its headquarters so that they could ensure that the patty wouldn't break apart in mass production. And it really has that feel and taste of the the regular Whoppers at Burger King. So obviously the Impossible Burgers, it's been around for a few years now. It's been sold in, in various different restaurants. You can imagine the kind of places that would go out of their way to to buy in a load of like Impossible Burger patties are probably going to be the kinds of places where they're going to take a lot of care over how they cook them. So another, it'll be a big test uh, for the Impossible Burger is whether they can mass produce them in Burger Kings and whether they'll still hold up with the way those guys kind of produce like mountains and mountains of food every single day, produce it really quickly. It's a very difficult environment for food to be in if, if it's if it's low quality. So yeah, big test for Impossible. John Porter, reporter at The Verge. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. All right, that's it for us this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.